0: Well, our scripture passage this evening comes from Luke, beginning in chapter 3 with verse 15 through 22. Listen now for a word from the Lord. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. This chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations John proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you. I am well pleased. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Well, if you were here at the Five at First a few weeks ago, way back in December during Advent, it feels like it was a long time ago, but it really wasn't, I guess. If you were here, though, you might remember that we were introduced to the person of John the Baptist in a passage that comes at the beginning of this same chapter of Luke from which we just read. And since I know it's been such a long time, I want to step back first and revisit that earlier description of John before we jump into the passage that we just heard. So here's Luke, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. We started with verse 15, so we're backing up to verse 1 in chapter 3. And the part of the passage that we read in December read this. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and Herod's brother Philip ruler of the region of Etruria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And so, what we talked about that Sunday after we read this passage, we, we discussed what an unlikely character John, this guy who was living in a time of all these great rulers and emperors and governors and high priests, how unlikely a person John was to be the one who the word of God came to. And then, if we step back and take even a broader view of the Gospel of Luke, if we look at chapters one and two, we find that. John has a sort of elevated status if we're simply comparing the number of times he shows up in Luke to the number of times he shows up in the other gospel accounts. If you go to the beginning of Luke, you find that the book itself doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins with the story of an angel visiting Zacharias, John's father, and foretelling John's birth. And then Luke also goes on to be the only one of the four gospels that tells of John's birth right alongside the birth of Christ. John seems to have a particularly pronounced role in Luke where all these extra details of his life are woven into the fabric of the story of the beginning of Jesus' life. So it sort of makes sense in reading the opening of our passage tonight that the people who were being baptized were waiting expectantly. They were asking whether John, this person they've heard so much about, is he the Messiah? But then something interesting happens. On this baptism of our Lord Sunday, we get an account of Jesus' baptism where John, the Baptist, is conspicuously absent. Did you guys catch why? Where John was? In prison. He's in prison. You know, the lectionary actually leaves out this part of our passage night, and I, I think I've warned before when you see preachers go with passages that kind of leave out a little block of information and skip a few verses, that usually means something was up. It omits these verses where Luke describes how John got himself into a bit of trouble with Herod for all that proselytizing. He ends up in jail. and the chronology of his imprisonment, I don't necessarily... Think precludes the possibility that maybe John was present at Jesus' baptism, but placing that tidbit of information before the verses where Jesus is baptized does seem to indicate a change in that relationship between John and Jesus. John's thread in the fabric of the gospel story is coming to an end at this point, while Jesus' thread is just beginning. And it's that strand of Jesus' life that we are all so familiar with, the strand that will continue from his baptism into his ministry and eventually to the cross. John's sudden absence in the story of Jesus' baptism here in Luke seems to announce that something new is about to happen. John's life and work has been so thoroughly documented by the writer And his life and work is not forgotten, but it's finished for now. With Jesus' baptism, there is something new, something distinctly different. If you happen to be in the 815 communion service last Sunday here at First Pres, you might remember me telling a story about a place that I had the opportunity to visit as I traveled through the Middle East this past summer. It's a place called Bethany Beyond the Jordan. Today, Bethany beyond the Jordan is this relatively small archaeological site. It's on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River, near the southernmost point of that river, right before it trickles out into the Dead Sea. It primarily attracts sort of a mix of Christian pilgrims and tourists and scholars. And the reason that groups like ours make that trip down to visit Bethany beyond the Jordan is because it is the spot on the Jordan River where Christians, since some of the earliest years of the faith have traditionally thought that the event we celebrate tonight on baptism of our Lord Sunday, they traditionally think that this is where that took place, that Bethany beyond the Jordan is the spot on the river that Jesus himself was baptized. And now I learned on my trip through the various sites that we got to visit that whenever early Christians identified actual geographic locations where events in scripture might have taken place, They came to those places, and they built churches, and they formed communities around those spots. So when you visit Bethany today, you see the ruins of this small stone church, and some of the original Byzantine mosaic floors are still intact. It's incredible. And right at the entry of where this church once stood, you see these ancient wide stone steps that lead down a slight incline about 50 feet And at the bottom of the steps, there is this ditch, and there are these four large stone foundations. For centuries, early church pilgrims would arrive at this this church, at this spot to worship, but also for many, they would come to this place to be baptized. Tired and worn down, caked in dirt and sweat and dust from their long journey, a journey many of them probably made by foot they would walk across those mosaic floors to the door of the church. And they would look down those steps. And at the bottom of those steps was the banks of the Jordan River. And that spot of the river was shaded by this grand portico that was supported by these four stone foundations. And as their toes dipped into that water, they would remove their old worn clothes the ones they had been wearing throughout their journey up until this point. And they would be baptized by immersion in the river. And as they emerged back out of those waters, they would be reclothed with new, clean garments. They embodied in that act this idea from Luke that in baptism, something new happens. That we're not quite the same after going into the water as we were before the new garments they put on served as a visible sign of an invisible change. I have this picture with me tonight that was given to me by my uh, college pastor some years back. And it's a black and white photo. I can show you afterwards if you're interested in seeing it. It's of this really old, beautiful stone baptismal font. It's in this church in Guatemala that Jennifer and I visited together on a mission trip. And underneath this photo is an inscription that simply says, Alan, remember your baptism. This photo hangs on the desk, or on the wall, rather, above the desk in our small little office of our apartment. And sometimes I find myself sitting there, and I think to myself, remember your baptism. I was pretty young when I got baptized. I don't really remember much of it. Remember your baptism. Some of us were probably infants when we were baptized. Perhaps some here have never been baptized. Remember your baptism. What exactly does that mean? I think many of us probably associate our baptisms or the idea of baptism solely with things like repentance, forgiveness, cleansing of sin. Those are words we hear a lot attached to baptism. And I agree that those are important aspects of baptism that we shouldn't just lightly overlook, but there's something else happening in this Lucan account of Jesus' baptism that I think is worth us remembering as well. Let me repeat quickly the lines from the end of our passage tonight. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son. The Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Luke connects baptism with the work of the Spirit and a naming as Beloved. Where John baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit that becomes the launching point for his entire ministry. If you were to pick up a Bible under your seat or go home and read it tonight and keep flipping through Luke, you would find that it is from the point of his baptism, that Jesus goes out from the banks of the Jordan and starts the work of his ministry. He goes out and he does healing and preaching, eating and praying, worshiping and debating. And I imagine in all of that, the memory of his baptism stuck with him. He did everything that comes after chapter 3. Knowing and trusting in the fact that he was a beloved child of God. Doing work with the conviction of the Spirit. He remembered his baptism. And his baptism was the point from which everything else began. So the question becomes, what would it look like if we lived our lives remembering our baptisms? Even if you've never been baptized, or like I posed, you're too young, you were too young to remember your actual baptism, what would it look like to live lives in the memory of the claim of baptism that is present here in this account of Jesus? Perhaps we would be a little more willing to trust in those moments where no solution seems possible. Perhaps we would be a little more willing to name the work of the Spirit in our lives rather than chalking it up simply to coincidence. Perhaps we would be a little more willing to offer forgiveness to those who we would prefer not to forgive. Perhaps we would be a little more willing to leave some space for something new to happen rather than working hard to craft the outcome that we want so bad. And as I read this passage and posed this question to myself, I found myself wondering, too, in this time of transition for this church here at First Presbyterian, what would it look like if this congregation remembered our baptisms and all we do? Maybe we would find ourselves a little more willing to lean on the promise that has already been made, on the trust that although things will look different down the road, God is at work in it all. Maybe, as Joanna Adams, who's this remarkable speaker, said this morning at our stewardship breakfast, maybe we would be a little better if we remembered our baptisms as a congregation at looking back at what has been and saying thank you, while looking forward to that which has yet to be and saying yes. Baptism is not an end in and of itself. It is not simply an act we do once and then forget about. Baptism is a starting point. It's a claim from which the rest of our lives move out from, a claim that we can carry with us into the hectic busyness of our lives, into the stress, into the pain, into the anger, into the joy of our everyday lives and ministries. I think back on the garments those pilgrims wore on their journey home, all those years ago from Bethany. I imagine those new linens probably got a bit dirty on the pathway back. But something tells me that the feeling of that fabric to their skin, that in that feeling, they remembered. They remembered the new thing that had happened there on the banks of the Jordan River. And they returned home a different person. So my invitation is simple. Remember Jesus' baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember that in these waters, in these waters, we receive the promise that the Spirit is already at work, that a new story has begun, and that we are invited anew each day to join in in the writing of it. So remember your baptism. And hear the invitation to wake up, to put on those new garments, and to live and love in a new way, each and every day. Amen.